You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There's so much. There's too much. There is just so much, much to talk about this week. Tubin is now a verb. The narrow definition to masturbate during a Zoom meeting. The broader definition to masturbate while at work. And we have Jeffrey Tubin of The New Yorker and CNN to thank for this neologism. During a meeting, a work meeting, an online work meeting, as I'm sure most of you have already heard, Tubin pulled it out and started to have a wank while staring at his colleagues who were staring back at him. Tubin thought he'd muted the video, but he hadn't. And I can't imagine he didn't intend to turn it off and didn't think he'd succeeded. I mean, unless this star political writer and cable news talking head didn't intentionally set his life on fire with a new book out and an election less than two weeks away. But who knows? Maybe he did it on purpose. Maybe he blew his life up on purpose. We're all cracking under the stress, aren't we? And for the record, while I'm being flip, what Tubin did was not okay. It is not okay to pull your dick out in front of your coworkers and doing something like that is a firing offense and it should be a firing offense. But I also want to answer a question I saw getting tossed around on Twitter a lot last week. Yeah, a lot of men masturbate at work. Pretty sure just about every man I know, myself included, has masturbated at work at least once. I think, you know, we start masturbating at school in private, not in front of our classmates and, you know, bathroom stall and it carries over to work. And at work, it happens maybe in a single-seater bathroom with a lock on the door or a spot where a guy is pretty damn sure he's not going to be seen or discovered or inflict himself on anyone else. But it does happen. And most men have done it. Sorry, ladies. Men are disgusting. Men are also optional. Maybe the lesbian separatist slogan from the 1970s will come in handy for some of you now. Men, don't breed them, don't feed them. Moving on, hot straight boys, teenagers, some of the minors, are posting videos to TikTok in which they cuddle and kiss and hump each other and just generally act like gay boys. According to the New York Times, the straight boys posting gay as fuck video clips to TikTok aren't gay. And the fact that they're making and posting these videos is through the looking glass proof that they're not gay. And while some gay people object to what they describe as gay baiting, straight and unavailable boys trying to up their follower counts by presenting themselves as gay and available, according to the New York Times, these boys who are doing this are trying to attract straight female followers, not gay ones. So they're kind of straight girl baiting, not gay boy baiting. But I got to say, those of us who are old enough to remember when hot young straight boys were completely paranoid about anyone thinking they might be gay, sometimes violently paranoid about it, yeah, take it from us. It is better to live in a world where the quickest way to prove you're not gay is by kissing another boy you're pretty sure isn't gay and not by beating the shit out of a boy you think might be gay. Being gay baited on TikTok, yeah, it's a lot better than being gay bashed in the boys' room. And moving on, because there's just so much, much, two men were arrested in Oklahoma last week for castrating a 28-year-old man who flew to Oklahoma from Virginia because he wanted to be castrated. And he was. 
The guys who castrated him weren't doctors and there were complications and the guy from Virginia without his balls wound up in the ER, at which point the authorities got involved. The memorable headline in the Oklahoman, cannibals lured victim to cabin in Oklahoma woods performed illegal castration. Illegal castration suggests there's perhaps a permitting process in Oklahoma that allows for illegal amateur castration, but these guys didn't get a permit and so they're in trouble. And the guy who performed the surgery, a guy who calls himself the eunuch maker on his website, he told the volunteer victim he planned to eat his balls, hence the cannibal headline. But this from the story is what really caught my attention. LaFleur County Sheriff Rodney Derryberry told the Oklahoman that he's never seen a case like this in this part of the country. What does Sheriff Derryberry think we're doing with our balls in other parts of the country, in the big cities? I've lived in Chicago, Berlin, Seattle, and Los Angeles, and I've spent enough time in New York that if something terrible routinely happened to men's balls in New York, something terrible would have happened to mine already. And yet somehow I still have both my balls. So yeah, Sheriff Derryberry, uh, we really don't have a problem in blue states or big cities with cannibal castrators. Yours is actually the first one I've ever heard of. Seems to be an Oklahoma thing. And there's more. There's so much more I could talk about this week. The Pope endorsed civil unions for same-sex couples. The High Court in Poland banned almost all abortions, leading to the kind of mass public street demonstrations that I think we're going to see here after our Supreme Court bans abortions. COVID, COVID, COVID continues to spread at the White House. Trump's Twitter account got hacked. Like I said, there is so much, much. But we got to get today's show started. One last thing I want to say, though. I voted this week, and I got a little weepy when I finally got to vote against that motherfucker. If you haven't already voted, you have one week left. The polls look good, but they look good in 2016. So let's not take it for granted. Let's not count our chickens. Let's not any of us look at the polls and then decide we can afford to stay home or afford to throw our vote away on a third-party protest candidate. Vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris like your life depends on it because it does. If you haven't already voted and it's possible to vote early where you live or if your mail-in ballot is sitting on your kitchen counter, please vote today. If you have to go to the polls next Tuesday on Election Day, wear a mask, bring something to eat, and be prepared to wait in a long line. Oh, and one last thing before we start today's show. There are plenty of women out there who've masturbated at work. It's not just the guys. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining us this week on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, more questions, no ads. Emily Bazelon is here for the magnum. Emily Bazelon from the New York Times Magazine. Emily Bazelon from Slate Political Gab Fest here to talk about the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, and what it means what's likely to happen, and what we can do about it. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a sex success story. I've been with my partner five years, and the relationship is wonderful. The sex is wonderful. But I've always had a really big issue with knowing what I want in bed, and even more than that, um, telling him exactly what I want in bed. I just get very self-conscious and my inner monologue starts going crazy. But last night I was drunk and I don't know what was different this time, but for once I managed to push the words out of my mouth and almost like magic, he was fingering me exactly the way that I wanted to be fingered in that moment. 
things escalated. And with this newfound confidence, I was again able to state to him exactly what I wanted. And we had anal sex for the first time and we both loved it. And then this morning we were having sex again. He climaxed. I did not. And I fulfilled this fantasy I'd had for a really long time um, of just laying there next to him while he caressed me and I made myself come. I can't explain it, but I just feel like I've turned a new sexual leaf unexpectedly and I'm really excited about it. It can be a tricky thing for someone with a sex advice podcast to endorse a little strategic substance abuse, but that's what you did here. You got drunk and it disinhibited you. You didn't get drunk. Uh, you didn't get blind drunk. You didn't get blackout drunk in public with a stranger. You got drunk with somebody that you feel safe with. And then because you were drunk, a little strategic substance abuse, you disinhibited. You were able to tell him what it was that you wanted. And I got to say that on the long list of things, people have had to get drunk to tell their partners they wanted to be fingered in a certain way and anal, and held while you masturbate. For a lot of people, those aren't going to seem like big asks or inhibiting asks. But inhibition, like everything else, is relative. And a lot of people have a really hard time asking for what they want, even if what they want to other people might seem rather simple. Sometimes that we want it so badly that it turns us on so much because of the sex negativity in the culture. It taints the thing that we want. It makes it seem like a lot to ask or really filthy, dirty, just because it's so arousing. It kind of ups the stakes of the ask. So even people who sometimes want something really simple need to knock a few back before they can ask for it. I'm glad you were able to do that. I'm glad you were able to disinhibit in this way to get drunk and tell your boyfriend what you wanted and feel safe with him and then continue to tell him what you wanted the next morning when you weren't drunk anymore, which means you can do this now and you don't have to get drunk in the future to ask for what you want, more of what you want, new and different things that you're going to come to want in the future. Thank you for sharing your sex success story. If you, listener, have a sex success story you want us to open next week's Lovecast with, give us a call, 206-302-2064. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old cis lesbian from Texas, and I am in a relationship. We've been together for a year, and we are compatible in so many ways, but she is a full-time caregiver for her, her very sick father. Once this pandemic is over, she wants to move to New York and have a fresh start, which includes her being single. She says it's more about her being free from anything that is holding her back, considering she hasn't been able to have a single moment to herself for the past three years or make any decisions where she didn't have to consider anyone else's feelings. I support her need to be free and I want her to be happy, but she says she wants to be together up until the big move. I absolutely adore her, but it's excruciating to think about having an expiration date. My question is, should we cut our losses right now to avoid a big breakup considering she wants me to still be in her life when she moves? Or should we continue dating for the unforeseeable future in hopes that she might ask for a long distance thing or even for me to go with her? Huh. It is weird. It's weird to be told by someone that they're going to dump you at some definitive point in the future. When my father dies, I am going to dump you. I am going to move away. I need to have a time in my life where I am free and unencumbered and I don't have to answer to anyone or take anyone else's feelings or needs into consideration. That is a heavy thing to lay on a romantic partner's head after being together for a year. 
you have to decide now if you want to stay in this relationship knowing that you are likely to have your heart stomped on a year or two from now. What will that mean for you? What will that do to you? You are free to end this relationship if you don't think that you can handle that. If you're worried that you will become more and more emotionally attached to this person who has signaled to you, has told you clearly and unambiguously that they intend to dump you a year or two from now, you're free to walk away. But you need to have a conversation with her. You need some clarity on what exactly she means by that. Does she mean that, you know, as soon as her father dies, she wants to be single? Or does it mean when her father dies that she needs some time, that she's going to want to take a break? But taking that break doesn't mean she's not still thinking of you as her partner, if not during the break, at some point in the future. She's clearly into the long-term plan, right? She's making a long-term plan about taking care of her father. She's making a plan about what she's going to do after she no longer has to care for her ailing father. Do you factor into even longer-term plans? Are you someone that she could see herself getting back together with after she has her rum springer, after she has her cum springer, after she gets to be single and perhaps date around for a while? Is there a potential payoff? And there's only ever potential payoffs. There are no sure things. Is there a potential payoff for you in continuing to invest in this relationship for the long term? Even if it means there may be a time, a year or two, where you don't see each other or you're long distance and it's on hold and the relationship's on hold. If she would like you to stay in her life now, and it sounds like she wants you to stay in her life now, the least she can do is give you some answers about what that means and what her intentions are and what she wants and her intentions may change. You can't lock her in. She can't promise you that give me a year after my father dies and then we will definitely get back together because shit can change. All you can ask is if you continue to invest in this relationship, is it possible that you will still be together a few years from now, even if there's a year or two break in the relationship while she gets out there in the world and does what she needs to do for herself after she gets out there in the world and feels free and unencumbered. And to feel free and unencumbered, she's going to have to be free and unencumbered, which means your relationship will be over for that time. All you're asking is if she can see a future where your relationship has resumed. And if she can, and you feel she's being honest with you when she says she can, maybe you keep seeing her. And if she can't see that, and you worry that the more you invest, the bigger the heartbreak is going to be for you when it does end, then you might want to end it now. Hi, Dan. This is straight uh, woman from Sydney, Australia. I am, I'd like to have a baby and I'm not um, in a relationship at the moment and I'd like to ask someone I dated for a couple of years whether they would be interested in having a child with me. And so my question is how much detail to go into in the, you know, in the question in broaching this subject with them. You know, sometimes I feel flippant and I just want to say, I want to have a baby. Is that something you'd be interested in? And at other times I think I need to be more cautious and spell out, you know, some some websites they might look at for more information or what it might entail. 
But I guess from my point of view, this is a person I dated for a couple of years. They already had children and we discussed having children, but they weren't in a position to do so for them. But yeah, I'm really I'm I'm ready to have a child and this is a person you know, who I'm still friendly with and might be interested. Anyway, so um, I just appreciate your thoughts um, on what I should consider about treating the subject respectfully for them. Dick Johnson is Dead is a new documentary on Netflix that I just watched. It was created by the documentary filmmaker Kirsten Johnson, directed by documentary filmmaker Kirsten Johnson. And it is an incredibly touching and funny and heartbreaking film about her father who is in cognitive decline and she is taking care of. And it imagines his death that tells the story of his life. Uh, and it's just really, really beautiful. And this has nothing to do with your question caller except that Kirsten Johnson is a mother and she co-parents her twins with the gay couple that live next door. And that is how she created her family. That is how the three of them created their family together. And it is, to use that old saw, an alternative family structure, but it clearly works and is clearly very loving. And it's just one part of this very beautiful film. So everybody watch Dick Johnson is dead to your question caller. You want to know which tack you should take. Should you laugh it off and be humorous or should you go in with all the information that he might need, your friend, your ex, when you propose making a baby together? And the answer is both. You're really talking about two conversations here and I think both approaches are required. It may seem a little ridiculous and funny to him when you raise the subject, when you pop the question about making a baby together. So I would, in your shoes, employ humor there in that first conversation. And then if he's interested, there will be a follow-up conversation that gets much more serious about the implications of co-parenting together in this way if you both decide to do this together. And then you're going to want to go in with all the legal information and all the websites that he's going to need to read and perhaps stories written by other involved known sperm donor dads. And you're going to have to have a long, detailed conversation about your expectations, including financial expectations of him if you decide to do this together. So in answer to your question, both. Go in with humor when you first raise the subject and be prepared if he says yes, that he's interested, to follow up with a much more serious and in-depth conversation. And I think you and everyone else out there should make time to watch Dick Johnson is Dead on Netflix. It's really terrific. Hey, Dan. I'm a 53-year-old straight dude living in the Southwest, and up until about two days ago, I was in a really amazing, wonderful relationship with a woman who was about 17 younger years younger than me. Um, she was 36. Uh, we have wonderful sexual chemistry. We got along great. We had a lot of fun together. We were beginning to make future plans, all of that stuff. One of the things that I loved about her was that she was on the same page sexually as I was in that um, she was interested in swinging. Neither of us had had a whole lot of experience with that, some, but not a lot. So um, we began to try it out in our relationship. 
So together we created a dating app profile. She asked me to manage it because I had more time and bandwidth for that. We put it out there and her request was that we keep it to age 30 and above. And here's what I did. In typical dude fashion, I looked at uh, women who were in their or profiles in their 20s. Um, I changed the, the age setting on the app. I swiped on a couple of people. I got a match with a woman who was 27 um, had a partner and seemed to be down. And I took this back to my girlfriend and she was just horrified. And uh, we ended up breaking up over it. She ended up breaking up with me over it. And here's where the story takes a weird twist. Later that day, my next door neighbor committed suicide in a really horrible fashion. And I waited a couple of days before reaching out to my then ex-girlfriend. But I did. And to my great relief, she came over and really helped me through a difficult time. Of course, we got back together. We had a counseling session with a great therapist which ended up mostly being focused on uh, my girlfriend and her sort of impulsive reactions and, and anger or rage, as, <laughs> as she would put it. So she really wonderfully owned um, her, you know, her part of it. And anyway, I th- we were on a great track. Um, fast forward four weeks later, we begin talking about, about swinging again. We create another profile. I set the age limit to 29. And um, again, she I wasn't trying to be underhanded. She had access to the app. She saw that and everything just, the wheels came off the bus. So my question really to you at this point and your reader, your listeners rather, particularly those in the swinger community is really just how badly did I fuck up, Dan? Dude, you don't need me to tell you how badly you fucked up. You fucked up badly, badly enough that this woman has dumped you now twice, not for two different things that you couldn't have seen coming, but for the same damn thing. And she told you the first time that this, the age limit thing, that it had to be somebody 30 and above was a limit for her, a boundary for her. Now, sometimes it can feel arbitrary when you're going to open a relationship up and your partner has a request. Not a request. You described it as a request. This isn't a request. It's a demand. It's a requirement. It's a limit. It's a boundary. And the request in your partner's case was got to be over 30. And maybe to you that seems arbitrary. Maybe to you the difference between 28 and 30 or 29 and 30 seems meaningless, not meaningless to her. There are people in open relationships who are allowed to have sex with anyone they want wherever they want, but they're not allowed to take somebody else that they're going to have sex with or they've had sex with to a certain restaurant or a certain coffee shop because it's meaningful to their partner. This space has meaning and they don't want somebody else going on a date with their partner at this particular restaurant or they don't want you having sex in the bed that you share. But you can have sex on the sofa in the living room. You can have sex in the shower in your apartment. You can have sex on the dining room table on the library sofa like in cabaret. But you can't have sex in your bed. And the distinction for the person who maybe doesn't attach as much emotional importance to the bed, doesn't see the bed as sacred, can seem 
trifling, but it's not trifling to the person who's making this not request again, demand, setting this limit, this expectation. And your ability as the partner in the open relationship to honor your partner's expectations, that's what makes your partner feel comfortable being in an open relationship with you at all. So basically, dude, come on. You shat the bed in the exact same way twice and you kind of shat it on purpose. You went out for Thai and then you took a bunch of fucking diuretics and an Ambien and woke up in a pool of your own shit and you're asking me what you did wrong. You know what you did wrong. You know what you did wrong. She took you back after you reached out to her, after your neighbor committed suicide, which I don't know, to me seems above and beyond the call. She wasn't obligated to rush in and care for you at that moment. Good on her that she was able to. And then you got back together for four weeks and wound up back at the same conversation about opening the relationship, about creating a shared couple's dating app. And then you went out for Thai food, took a diuretic and an ambient and laid down in the bed and shat it again. You know what you did wrong. You know what you did wrong. And you don't need all the swingers out there or all the other people out there in open relationships who listen to the show to call in and tell you what you did wrong here. You know. Go find a girlfriend that you can be with long-term, who's interested in an open relationship, who doesn't care if the women that you sleep with together or sleep with on your own are under 30, if it's that important to you as a straight guy to be with a woman under 30. You can't be with women under 30 and be with this woman. And the odds that she'd take you back a third time seem non-existent to me, whatever her issues around anger or rage might be. But right here, I think she has every right to be angry or disappointed and every right to have dumped you. And I think, I think you know, I think you know why your ass got dumped going forward. When you're in an open relationship with someone, when someone says to you, I trust you enough to be in an open relationship, you have to prove to them that you're worthy of their trust, which is by honoring their, not requests again, their demands, their limits, their expectations, their boundaries. This is the kind of relationship you want. You need to do better in future when you find another woman who wants to have this kind of relationship with you. The age limit thing might not be an issue for your future girlfriends. It was an issue for your ex, but there will be other things your future girlfriends expect from you. Just as I'm sure there are things that you requested or expected from your girlfriend to make that open relationship feel safe for her and safe for you. And if you can't honor those things, yeah, you're not cut out for open relationships or swinging or polyamory or monogamy. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old cis bi woman calling from a major East Coast city. Uh, I'm in a relationship with a cis bi man. We've been together for just under five months now, and it's been really awesome. I think he's an amazing person. Uh, we get along very well and have shared values and interests. We make each other very happy and have amazing sex. So all is well, except that he approached me last night and expressed that he He's very happy in our relationship, that he loves me, but he's not sure that he's feeling the feelings he should be feeling at this stage, um, by which he means, you know, I think the fireworks and butterflies and rainbows stuff that people talk about when they talk about being in love. Um, 
So I guess I distilled that down to he he loves me, but perhaps he's not sure if he's as in love with me as I guess external societal expectations make him think that he should be at this point. To which my response was, you know, we're we're only a few months into this. We're got together in the middle of a global pandemic. It's been very strange circumstances for a lot of reasons and that it's okay to not be sure about the future and the future of our relationship at this point. And that if he is happy with me and that he, you know, on a day to day basis wants to be in this relationship, that the the ineffable feeling that he seems to be describing might not be as consequential as he's chalking it up to be. And that, you know, ultimately that new relationship energy or that intense infatuation, whatever you want to call it, fades over time. And what you're left with are kind of the tenets of the relationship that I think we do have. So I guess the question is, like, what do I do with this information that he's given me? I, you know, to some degree, have brought this upon myself because I was very clear about, uh, you know, wanting him to be upfront with me about his feelings. And I didn't want to be blindsided. So I respect and appreciate that he's come to me with this information. But of course, now this is kind of hanging over my head and I'm constantly feeling like the rug might be pulled out from under me. The way we kind of left the conversation is that, you know, we're we're staying together for the moment and that he's going to continue to interrogate his feelings and, you know, decide if this is the right thing for him, because if it's not the right thing for him. And again, I appreciate this. He said he cares about me deeply, doesn't want to string me along. And also for his sake, he doesn't if this isn't the right thing for him, then he wants to go out and look for that. So, again, I just I I don't really know how to proceed here. It's causing me a lot of anxiety. I don't want to feel like I have to convince him that he wants to be with me. And again, when I kind of asked him flat out, would you would you be happier by yourself? He's like, no, no, no. You know, I I'm very happy with you and I enjoy this relationship. But I don't know if these really deep I don't know, these deep feelings of love, I guess, is is are, are there or that he even can identify what that is. And he's kind of basing this off of things he's heard people say about being in love. So I, I'm just a little confused about how this all went down and would love to get your advice on all of it. Be careful what you ask for. You ask this guy to share with you how he was really feeling about the relationship. And he did. And he's feeling somewhat ambiguous and unsure about whether he can love you the way he's been led to believe people love each other when they're in romantic love, which you know brings up this thing that people do. People talk so much shit about love, about romantic love when their romantic partners are within earshot. People will say things like, I knew, love at first sight, uh, blah, 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 when their partners are within earshot. And when they're having a dark night of the soul, when they're on their own, when they're speaking with a trusted confidant who isn't their romantic partner, they will often be a little bit more honest and a little bit more nuanced and they will acknowledge the presence of doubt and ambiguity. But when they're talking up their relationships in front of friends or with friends who aren't true intimates, they rarely admit to those feelings of doubt, to being unsure, to having to make a conscious, active choice to love someone and to let someone love them, to have to do the work, to do the math of rounding somebody up from 0.64 to the one or 0.72 to the one. Your boyfriend who is old enough to know better, is old enough to hopefully have had some 
truly intimate friendships with people who opened up to him about their feelings of doubt and ambiguity about their long-term committed romantic partners that they're happy to be with, he should be old enough to know better than to look inside and say, well, because I'm not absolutely 100 percent sure that you are the one, I'm not sure I should be in this relationship because you're never sure. You're never 100 percent sure. Again, there's only that 0.62 you round up to the one or that 0.72 or 74 if you're super fucking lucky that you round up to the one. And people limp through life, limp through their dating and romantic lives telling themselves that if they ever meet the one, they will know that they will have no doubts and there are no relationships, no committed relationships. There's no love. There's no romance. There's no nothing without doubt. A little bit like religion that way. There's no faith without doubt, no true faith without doubt. There is no true love without doubt either. It displayed on his part kind of low emotional IQ to share with you these feelings that you encouraged him to share with him. Perhaps he should have had a filter. He should have known better than to share this with you now because it's going to make you feel insecure and it's going to change how you interact with him. And you need to talk about that with him. And you need to correct for that. You need to make an active effort to self-correct for the insecurities you're probably no doubt feeling. Because now, instead of this being a relationship, now, instead of being his girlfriend, being a part that you got, it's a part you're still auditioning for. And you can't can't play the role if you're still auditioning for it. You can't inhabit the role. I'm sorry to get into theater speak here after faith speak. You can't inhabit the role. Until you've got it and you feel like you've got it. And, you know, part of being the girlfriend is letting your guard down. Part of being the girlfriend is, can you know, confronting him if there are things that you two need to iron out and work on together. And you're not going to feel if you're auditioning for the part still like you can really confront him about that shit and challenge him as an equal party in this relationship if you're still basically on probation. So, Yeah. He needs to grow up a little bit about what it means to be in love and that there's a little bit of choice involved there. And there is never love without doubt. And you need to, in a way, put this out of your mind that he said this to you and understand that, of course, he has doubts as no doubt you do. You don't mention any doubt about him, but I think you have perhaps doubt about him. Maybe your doubts could attach to his low emotional IQ and that – he shared this stuff with you that he shouldn't have shared with you even though you'd encouraged him to share everything with you, which maybe you shouldn't have done. Maybe that's the doubt that you need to, to set aside. And then you both need to agree just to continue to see each other. As you said, take it day by day and see what comes. See what feelings come, what feelings grow. But you will never outgrow doubt. Doubt will always be a part of your romantic life, whether he's a part of your romantic life forever or not. And doubt – let him know doubt will always be a part of his romantic life too, whether you're a part of his romantic life in the future or not. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old queer girl in Colorado, and I have a question about choking. So I've been dating this guy, and it's going really well, and I'm really into Dom subplay, and I especially really enjoy being choked. Um, but recently we've been talking about the potential dangers of choking. I really don't want to give it up, but I'm thinking that I should probably rethink my practice. Is there a safe way to get choked? And if there isn't, what are some good alternatives for choking? 
Dr. Debbie Herbenick, a sex researcher at Indiana University, recently dropped by Savage Love, my column, to talk about this, to talk about choking. And I'm just going to quote Debbie here. Choking is really risky. Even though people call it choking, external pressure on the neck from hands or a cord or a necktie is technically strangulation. And in rare cases, choking slash strangulation causes people to pass out, leading to probable mild traumatic brain injury. And choking strangulation sometimes kills people. Even if the person who was choked consented to it, even if they asked to be choked, the person who did the choking is often legally held responsible in the event of injury or death. Choking, it's ubiquitous on porn. And a lot of people, particularly young people who've been exposed to porn very young, seem to have imprinted on it in a way that those of us who defend porn and don't see porn as harmful have to wrestle with and, and have to confront. And it's not just people wanting to choke people. That's the problem. There are a lot of people out there who have eroticized being choked, being held by the throat, even having pressure applied, which is very, very dangerous. I have a friend, a professional dominatrix, Mistress Matisse. She will literally stick needles through a guy's balls and then post the pictures to Twitter. She will not choke people. She will not engage in any sort of breath play, not just breath play that involves compression of the neck. So I have to be very blunt about this being very, very dangerous. And it can get suddenly dangerous in ways that people didn't anticipate. And if you've done it a million times and nothing bad has ever happened, that doesn't mean the next time something bad can't happen. So what do you do if this turns you on? Well, someone can place their hand over your mouth instead of placing a hand around your neck and cut off your air that way. There's also symbolic choking, which is where someone makes that, you know, U-shape with their thumb and fingers with their hand. And rather than wrapping it around your neck or pressing against your neck, they press it against your clavicles, against those muscles above your sternum right before your neck begin that are very sturdy, not all their body weight, not a ton of pressure, but they can apply enough pressure to hold you and hold you still and hold you down without compressing your neck and risking your life and their future. There are other ways to engage in breath play that we've talked about on the show that can be safe. Some people find gas masks very sexy. You can wear a gas mask and someone can put their hand over the intake valve and all you have to do if you need air it, to get it is to move your head, is to break that seal with their hand. And so that's another way to have your air cut off. It's not quite choking, but for people who want to play with that. Important note when it comes to any form of breath play, never alone. Whenever you read a sad story about somebody dying from autoerotic asphyxiation, it's always autoerotic asphyxiation. They're almost always playing alone, not playing with a partner. Very rarely do you hear about somebody being harmed, doing asphyxiation play with a partner present, which is not an endorsement of asphyxiation play, especially choking or pressure or any form of strangulation. So again, your options in ascending order of kinkiness, I suppose, are a hand over the mouth, maybe with the occasional other hand coming in to close your nose, the hand wrapped in a choke position but pressed up against your sternum, not pressing down on your neck or wrapped around your neck, and then a gas mask. Those are your options for, I don't want to call it safer choking play because choking play is almost never safe, but certainly safer than somebody applying direct pressure to your neck or compressing your neck or your airway or your arteries during sex. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old cis male from the Canadian East Coast. 
I recently got a new job that would require me to move to the U.S. West Coast at the end of the year, and my living partner of five years and I were planning to stay together long distance. But now I have second thoughts. Her career will require her to stay where she is, and I plan on staying on the West Coast for a while. I still care for her deeply, but to tell you the truth, even before getting a job, I have been feeling we're feeling like we're growing apart. And who we are five years ago, we're not who, not who we are today. I've talked to friends and family about it and given some thoughts, sometimes with tears in my eyes, and came to the conclusion that while there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the relationship, it would be best if we went our separate ways. My question is, since it's going to be two more months before I leave, do I have that conversation with her now? I also chose to leave a week after her birthday, but I have the option to move it up earlier. Assuming the U.S. isn't embroiled in pandemic civil war after the election, would that be the most humane and least awkward option? I'm surprised that anyone who lives in the same place like Canada would want to uh, join us here on the USS Titanic after we list seriously to one side as the orchestra plays near my God to thee on the poop deck. Surprised you'd come. But if you're coming, welcome. And if you know that you've grown apart, if you know that it's over, you should end it. You shouldn't draw it out. You shouldn't wait two more months. You shouldn't wait until after your girlfriend's birthday to end things. You should end things now. Two months, eight weeks is a good time, a good long time, time enough almost for her to grieve the end of this relationship and be feeling a little bit better by the time her birthday rolls around. If you wait until the week after her birthday, after you've left for your new job on the west coast of the USS Titanic, to dump her, she's going to look back over the last few months or the last year and know that you wanted to dump her sooner and know that you hanging in there until after her birthday was an insincere gesture on your part. And she's going to feel additionally hurt by that, hurt piled on top of the hurt of being dumped in the first place because it's going to be humiliating and it's going to spoil the end of whatever time you two did have together. And who knows, maybe in the next eight weeks after you dump her before you leave or after you dump her and you leave, if it's possible for you to leave sooner, she might meet the next person that she's going to be with for however much time she's going to be with the next person she's going to be with. She may move on to her next successful relationship. And this can be, even if it's going to end after five years, a successful relationship. It's likelier to be a successful relationship that ended and that both people survived if you can stick the dismount. And it might screw the dismount up if it's the day after her birthday and you dumped her and she feels angry, betrayed, hurt, more angry and betrayed and hurt than she would have otherwise if you dumped her when you knew it was over. And again, if in the next eight weeks she meets somebody that she could be with in the future, that'll be great. And it's possible she might not meet that person if she's still with you and she believes she has a future with you that you and I and all my listeners all know now she doesn't have. So I would advise you as I have advised others to end it now. End it kindly. You say there's not a lot of conflict here in this relationship. You don't hate each other. Well, stick the dismount and she is likelier to not hate you in the future. Wait until after her birthday, the day after her birthday, and I think she's likelier to hate you in the future, particularly if there's a missed opportunity in those eight weeks between your call to me and your leaving Canada and leaving her where there's a missed opportunity that she's aware of. Yeah, no, end it now. Always end it as soon as you know it's over and as soon as it's 
possible to end it kindly and compassionately. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with Emily Bazelon, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, making Emily one-third of the ruling triumvirate of all political podcast commentators everywhere. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm okay. Um, you know, it's sort of a tense time pre-election, but I'm okay. How are you? Uh, I'm a wreck. I literally, before calling you, just voted and filled out my ballot and started to, you know, not full-on sobbing, heaving, crying, but tearing up and and just the tension of the last four fucking years all kind of came not quite to a head. I've had actually some crying fits before, but just like, ah, in that moment, I can't believe we're finally getting to vote against this motherfucker. I understand. I think I think on all sides, it just feels like the stakes are so high and, and that's just hard. I wanted to have you on to speak about Amy COVID Barrett, as she's being called, Amy Comey Barrett. Uh, the Trump nominee to the Supreme Court, and perhaps by the time this airs, a sitting justice on the United States Supreme Court. For anyone who's been hiding under a rock and and has been skipping my podcast and yours too, because I talked about her basically the day after, as the likely nominee, the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Who is Amy COVID Barrett, Emily, and and what do my listeners who've been under rocks need to know about her? That's Amy Coney Barrett. Though I wonder. <laughs> That was a Freudian slip from you, or maybe you'd rather call her Amy COVID Barrett. Um, so she is a um, a law professor previously from Notre Dame. She is currently a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one of the regional courts of appeals in the country. And she is very much someone who has been groomed for exactly this moment of a Supreme Court nomination by the Federalist Society, which is the group that formed in the early 80s to try to really move the courts in a strongly conservative direction. And so she is sort of like the capstone on a longstanding project of the right to make the judiciary much more hospitable to their aims. And, you know, some of the people who are behind her, like the Koch brothers or Charles Koch, I guess I should say, are people who have very much their corporate interests in mind. And deregulation and, um, you know, perhaps trying to ensure that even a Democratic Congress and president would have real limits on the kinds of social benefits legislation they could pass. And then other people are behind her, the religious right. Sorry, I'll just stop there and I'll stop talking. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, the religious right. She's their girl. She's their Catholic girl. And I say that as a Catholic girl myself. She's who they're hoping will finally repeal, you know, be the the vote to repeal Roe v. Wade, possibly also Obergefell. But one of the things I was shocked to hear being bandied about in the confirmation hearings and her confirmation hearings was it seemed the possibility of overturning Griswold, which is a Supreme Court decision that doesn't get as many name checks as Roe or Obergefell. Can you let my listeners know what Griswold is and why we should be concerned? Yeah. So Griswold is this 1960s case that's like the precursor to Roe. And so the um, case in Griswold was about a couple in Connecticut who wanted to use birth control. And Connecticut had this very, I think you and I would agree, invasive statute that actually prohibited you from buying birth control. And so this married couple was like the perfect plaintiffs, right? Because they were, this is about the privacy of their own bedroom. And the Supreme Court majority opinion starts to stake out this right of privacy in the Constitution and kind of 
creating it from other parts of the 14th Amendment. And this is where we get this kind of famous line about like the penumbras of parts of the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment um, coming into play, which isn't a terribly well thought out theory um, or and basis for a right to privacy, I would argue. And so in a sense, that trajectory in Griswold kind of haunts Roe, because then when Roe continues with the same primary basis for the right to um, to a constitutional access to abortion, we're still in this world of, it, it's called in legal terms, substantive due process, which is like in itself kind of an oxymoron, right? Like process is different usually from substance. Um, and so this particular legal foundation is not the most solid. Later on in a 1990s case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, I would argue that the court puts the right to abortion on more solid footing that at least discusses um, gender equality, right? And the idea of women's liberation and freedom. Mm -hmm. But this original older case is really important for the right to privacy, but it's also um, not the, it's sort of like it's been there for so long that, and it's really important that obviously that states not be able to prevent people from buying birth control, but the actual basis for it is kind of shaky. And I think that's why the conservatives are taking aim at it. And it's shaky because it basically read into the constitution, a right to privacy that to the shock of many who assume that there's some mention of a right to privacy isn't actually in there. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think we all take for granted that we have some individual zone of autonomy that the government cannot reach within. And look, there are a lot of libertarians all over the political spectrum, as well as people on the left who want to preserve that autonomy. So I, yeah, it's really, it's hard for me to imagine the Supreme Court really going that far back. But, you know, the the notion that if you believe in an original understanding of the Constitution, that's much more staple to the text. And this is something that is important to some of the Supreme Court justices like Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett is a part of that. Then Griswold looks vulnerable in its reasoning, if not in the kind of real um, impact that that particular kind of challenge might have. It wasn't that long ago that we had a Republican running for president who almost got the nomination, my old college roommate, Rick Santorum, who was out there on the campaign trail arguing against legal contraception, that contraception, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I'm pretty close because this was burned into my mind at the time, that access to contraception gave people a license to do that which was not right, which was to have sex in Rick Santorum's opinion, for fun, not to make additional Santorums, little Santorums, like he and his wife have made, I think, seven or eight little Santorums. And, and so it's not, you know, conspiracy theory on the left to imagine that right-wingers would like to scrap Griswold, the same right-wingers that want to trap women with unplanned pregnancies and, and compel them, force them to give birth and have children that they don't want or can't take care of, in addition often to the children that they already have. Most people, most women who seek abortions already are mothers, would also want to scrap access, legal access to contraception. We see the right all the time trying to block contraception. And, and this is what just is making my head explode when I think about Amy uh, Coney Barrett sitting on the Supreme Court. As concerned as I am as a gay married man about Obergefell or Obergefell? Obergefell. 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 It's really hard to say that word. I'm dyslexic <laughs> and I'm going to get that backwards. And as concerned as I am about Roe and the principle of people having a right to control their own bodies and, you know, 
the idea that women are also people and should have a right to control their own bodies. I'm freaking out about Griswold. And I'm also wondering why we haven't seen an amendment to place a right to privacy in the Constitution. I can't imagine anybody on the left would oppose that. And I imagine a lot of people, even the Ma Freedom people on the right, would support a constitutional amendment placing explicitly a right to privacy into the Constitution. Yeah, we've gotten really bad at constitutional amendments. They're very hard to pass, right? It's a long process. You have to have uh, a really strong supermajority, um, either through the states or Congress or really both. And so uh, I think we've sort of taken for granted that this right to privacy is going to hold. Um, I guess I would say this about contraception. I think that with Barrett on the court, the kinds of challenges you could see are expanding the rights of religious groups and organizations not to provide birth control through their health insurance plans, right? So we've already seen challenges to the Obamacare mandate, um, both in widening the scope of the kinds of religious groups that don't have to participate, right? So originally, the Obama administration made an exception for churches, but then schools and other kinds of social service agencies wanted an exception to providing birth control through health insurance plans. And now they have that too. And then craft stores wanted an exception. <laughs> well, right. I mean, you do start to wonder if the exceptions become so wide that, you know, the, the guarantee is meaningless. And you could imagine a world in which, you know, the government the Supreme Court bars the government from requiring um, health insurance plans that the government is covering, right, um, from providing birth control. So I think those are places where this kind of slippery slope uh, could begin. Why has the left been so bad about courts and judges and thinking about courts and judges? You saw a lot of people on the right line up behind Trump in 2016 because he promised to appoint people to the court that they would approve of, who would give them what they wanted from the courts. And I remember Hillary Clinton tweeted in the run-up to the 2016 election that Donald Trump, if elected, if he became president, could appoint two or possibly three or even four justices to the Supreme Court. And she said, this is a prospect that should terrify us all. And the left's response to that was to shout down Hillary Clinton, to scold Hillary Clinton for trying to scare us with judges. In retrospect, shouldn't we have been scared? Yes. I mean, in retrospect, you know, look, I'm a court watcher. I went to law school. I care a lot about the law. And so this has been, for me, a long time personal and professional frustration that conservatives have been so good at energizing their base around the courts. And liberals tend to be kind of complacent and not give it high priority. You know, there, there is a reason for this. I mean, I think President Obama kind of embodied this, which is that there is an argument that it's a bad idea to turn to the courts to protect basic rights, that actually they're much more firmly planted if they come through the legislature and through elected officials than the unelected branch. So I think Obama was hesitant to really use the courts as part of, um, you know, social reform. Even if he backed it, he wanted it to come from legislatures. But the problem with that is that when you have one side of the political spectrum that is really interested in using the courts in this um, aggressive way and the other side doesn't play ball, then there's just an asymmetry and unevenness there. And so I think what we've seen is the race has been very effective at organizing, especially around overturning Roe. And the left has kind of 
sat on its hands a little bit. And as a result, we have um, the Supreme Court that we're about to get. I mean, it's also a matter of our constitutional structure that we have life tenure for judges. And so that has meant that the deaths or retirements of particular justices and the timing of those events has been able to shift the balance of the court. And that may be a bad idea too. But given that we have that constitutional structure and everyone knows about it, I think you can um, really argue that liberals need to up their games on the their game on the courts. And maybe that's going to happen now. And then the question is like, what do they do and how far do they go and when and does court packing come into play? All these questions that we're starting to see at least people ask. I think we should stop calling it court packing. You know, the right under Mitch McConnell's leadership blocked Obama's appointments to the courts, uh, to federal courts for the last two years, uh, held open hundreds of vacancies, which Donald Trump has filled, stole a seat uh, from Merrick Garland. And President Trump, who lost the popular vote by more than three million votes, has appointed now three justices to the Supreme Court. It wouldn't, I don't think, it's good messaging for the Democrats. And we're always terrible at messaging. We can't even stop calling them entitlements and stop, start calling them earned benefits when we're talking about Social Security and Medicare. We shouldn't call it court packing, court balancing, court unrat fucking. Expansion. Court People. expansion. <laughs> and right, right. You know, they've stolen seats and we should be out there arguing that this is about restoring balance and fairness to the courts, not about packing the courts for a predetermined outcome. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. And, you know, in this part of the conversation, it's important to point out that the Constitution says nothing about the number of justices that are supposed to be on the Supreme Court. The number changed once in the 1830s. It changed three times in the 1860s. And then when FDR talked about adding justices to the Supreme Court in the 1930s, he wanted to bring the number up to 15. That idea was pretty popular at the time. I and mean, we don't have really good polls, but the public did not freak out against FDR. What ended that, um, let's call it court expanding plan, was that the conservative justices backed down. They one person, you know, switched sides from previous decisions to uphold an important part of the New Deal. And then other justices retired. And so FDR actually did get to change the Supreme Court. And I feel like that part of the story often gets lost when people kind of deride court, court packing. Um, and you're also right that when you look at the popular vote and you look at the way the composition of the Senate favors um white rural voters, we have this kind of imbalance of popular will and all the ways in which the Democrats tend to often win a majority in the Senate or win the popular vote for the presidency. And that has not been reflected in the last several Supreme Court choices, which um, have largely or disproportionately gone to Republicans. So I think that's part of the set of constraints. Here. We're in a situation where seven of the nine justices on the Supreme Court will have been appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. So the composition of the court overwhelmingly does not reflect the will of the American people as the court rumbles toward overturning Roe, overturning Obergefell, overturning possibly Griswold. It's just so gallingly anti-small-D democratic that it seems unsustainable yeah, I mean, I think that is a big question mark about how American democracy is going to work. I mean, look, first we have to get through this election. 
Um, and then there is just going to be this real tension. So, you know, we are going to have this more conservative Supreme Court, and it means a lot to have six justices on the right as opposed to five, especially because Chief Justice John Roberts has in um, small and large ways kept the court in some kind of, I don't want to say centrist, but it hasn't gone totally to the right in the last couple of years. You know, the Roberts Court has his name on it, and I think its legacy and its public standing is important to him, and that has kind of modulated some of the court's stances. His ability to hold the reins in that way is going to be very much diminished once um, Barrett is confirmed. And we've already seen from the court without Amy Barrett on it, supporting Republican voter suppression efforts in a big way. It's not just abortion, gay marriage, contraception, social issues. The court is actively participating, buttressing Republican voter suppression efforts to block young people, people of color, black people from voting and prevent states from counting votes. Where does this end? It just, it, it seems like we're headed toward the collapse of at least the legitimacy of our government, of our democratic government, if not the collapse of our government itself. If there's no way even to, for the popular will to be expressed at the ballot box, even if it's not reflected in the composition of the Senate or who sits in the White House or who sits on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So the most alarming possibility before us is that this court continues the rightward march, especially in areas of voting and enfranchisement and, um, you know, kind of the integrity of the democratic process. And that allows for Republican minority rule long after the country, politically speaking, has moved away from it. Right. So the country is getting younger, it's getting more racially and ethnically diverse, it's getting more liberal, but you have this um, Supreme Court that represents an old um, national alliance that um, is in like terrible conflict with what the Democratic branches want to do. That's the kind of nightmare scenario. And we have had that Supreme Court before. Um, that's part of why we had the number of justices change in the 1860s during Reconstruction, because the Supreme Court was perceived as hostile to Reconstruction. And it's also what went wrong in the 1930s and then earlier in the 1910s in what's called the Lochner era, where the court was really using the 14th Amendment um, and its guarantee of equal protection to um, really empower corporations. So what we have seen in previous eras is that the Supreme Court, it can lag somewhat behind the democratic polity, but if it gets really, really out of sync with the public, especially when you have a very conservative set of justices who are really representing the interests of the powerful and wealthy, it can't last. Like the democracy just can't have the unelected branch use its power of judicial review to stop the new deal, for example, like something doesn't hold. And so one would imagine, as we now potentially sail into similar waters, that something is going to have to break in the same way. And, you know, the structure of the Constitution, which allows for amendments, as you were talking about before, which allows us, allows Congress to change the number of justices or to take their power to hear certain cases away from them. There are ways in which the Democratic branches can constrain the court, and the justices know that. And so I think one thing that's going to be uh, really important is how far they are willing to go, like how much strain 
they are willing to put on the system, knowing that in the end, they're the branch of government without an army, right? Like they (laughs) are the least powerful branch. Well, it's true. Like if they do things that, you know, the public simply won't accept, then there is going to be a huge backlash and repercussion onto them. Um, We just haven't faced that kind of real pressure on the constitutional structure in a long time. And every time it happens, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Let's talk about Roe really quickly, and and then I'll let you uh, get back to (laughs) the New York Times Magazine and Slate Political Gabfest. Your real job's not talking to me on my podcast. It has seemed for years that there was this consequencelessness, which is not a word, but I'm going to make it a word. Uh, to right-wing opposition, right-wing politicians uh, opposing abortion rights, which are supported by supermajorities of the American people, including majorities of Republicans. Uh, but to appeal to the rabid, the most rabid part of the GOP base that, that opposes abortion, to appeal to evangelical Christians, Republican politicians had the luxury of saying they were against abortion, saying they would support judges who would repeal Roe, knowing that they weren't going to repeal Roe, knowing that there weren't enough justices on the court at that time to repeal Roe. Well, now we're going to live in a world, potentially a post-Roe world, where there are consequences, not just for women who then can't access abortion services more so than they already can't in states where it may be functionally impossible to, to get an abortion because of the barriers erected. But politicians may then not be able to just stump against Roe, scoop up the votes of anti-Roe voters, and not have pro-Roe voters make their decisions based on uh, abortion rights. Is a post-Roe future, is there any silver lining to to overturning Roe for, for lefties and progressives and people who support access to abortion, I guess is my question. Well, it does kind of bring into sharp relief these conflicts over abortion that have been kind of muted and submerged in the way you were talking about, right? So like now what happens is in blue states, abortion is really not much of an issue. There's an assumption that access will continue. Um, Let's just imagine that that remains the case. I mean, it's possible the Supreme Court could threaten that, but that seems further down the line. Then you have purple states where abortion is somewhat of an issue, but they would probably maintain some access to it. Then you have red states, which are really eager to ban abortion, like from the get go, right? I mean, you have these bills passing that make it illegal, basically at six weeks of pregnancy. And in those states, that um, rallying around the anti-abortion cause has been really useful to getting conservative politicians elected. Does the public really want to have no abortion clinics in the state? I think in a bunch of states, yeah, that is where public opinion comes down and that is what's going to happen. And of course, if we end up with a country where abortion is virtually illegal or really illegal in, you know, 15 or 20 states, it's a big country and those states tend to have lots of actual square miles in them. And so what you end up with is a huge burden on poor women for whom traveling, you know, out of state to um, get an abortion is a much bigger burden. You also have a big burden on teenagers and you have the, also the prospect of making it illegal or, you know, criminalizing taking a teenager across state lines to get an abortion. Like we don't know what the Supreme court would say about that kind of law. So I think all of that is a really big threat to clinic based access. What is also happening at the same time though, is really a revolution in abortion by mail. 
So this is actually um, something I'm, I want to write about and haven't gotten to write about it yet. So I wonder what you think. But in countries like the United Kingdom and Canada, the coronavirus created conditions in which people started taking abortion pills with much less doctor supervision. And I'm talking about the first trimester, but, you know, these are pills that help, that basically induce a miscarriage at home. And what we have learned from the exigencies of the coronavirus is that women, um, people who are pregnant and want to end their pregnancies can do this safely without doctor's visits much more than we really had evidence for before. There was some evidence that this was pretty safe in a kind of harm reduction model, but now that that is solid. And it is also extending taking these abortion pills through like the 11th week of pregnancy, at least. And I don't know how that ends up, right? Like, even if it's illegal to order these pills in the mail um, and to get any kind of advice over the phone through telemedicine. And look, it, it will be and is illegal, or, or I should say it will be illegal in some of these states that want to ban abortion. To really prevent that would mean opening tons of mail. It would, it would mean putting women in jail. And that is a very uncomfortable place for the right to land in this discussion. And so I really wonder about that, whether there's this way in which a victory in the courts is going to be really challenged by this like technological development of access to abortion through the mail. Um, but I wonder if that's something that you're, you've thought about or how that strikes you. Well, in some states, they, they require women to go to a clinic, uh, have an appointment, and then return the next day to take that pill right now. Yes, and I imagine absolutely. those states will ban uh, people from mailing the pill into the states, but in the same way that Chicago can't prevent people from driving into Indiana and buying guns and coming back to Chicago because they can't build a wall around the city, they're not going to be able to build a wall around Alabama to keep RU486, the abortion pill, out of the state. Right. Right. And so the only way that you really penalize that kind of abortion provision, even if it's somewhat black market and underground, is by putting people in jail. And investigating miscarriages as murders. Exactly. And I mean, that has happened. I, you know, I interviewed and wrote about a woman in Pennsylvania who went to jail for helping her daughter have um, an abortion with these pills. So it's, it's, it's not that it is impossible. But the idea that that's really going to be the mechanism of enforcing the anti-abortion agenda, I just wonder how much the broader public is really going to have the stomach for that. All right. Can you please tell me not to look up Hillary Clinton's tweet about the court, about Donald Trump appointing justices to the court, and then spend the next four years yelling at everyone who, quote, tweeted Hillary Clinton or replied to Hillary Clinton's tweet and told her not to try to scare people about the courts? Because that's really kind of what I want to do with my time right now. And I don't think it's very constructive. It's not constructive, Dan. You got to move forward. We all got to move on from that. It was misguided, however misguided it might have been. Like, it's, it's the past. And we just can't, we have to figure out how to deal with this hand that we are being dealt as we speak. And I don't know the answer, but I don't think that obsessing about Hillary Clinton's tweets and retweets is going to get you where <laughs> you want to go. <laughs> sometimes the hand you're dealt is a presidential candidate that you're not in love with, but is going to appoint people to federal courts and to the Supreme Court that you're going to feel better about than, say, a Donald Trump appointing people to those same federal courts yeah. and to the Supreme Court. Here's an, here's an up note to end on. In August, 
um, Pew did a survey about how much people think the court is very important. The Supreme Court, the courts in general. And for the first time that I can remember, more Democrats and liberals rated the courts as very important than conservatives and Republicans. So it may be a little late for the message to be getting through, but I think it is getting through. And it's going to take 20, 30, 40 years to undo the damage from the message not having gotten through sooner to lefties and progressives. That is entirely possible. It's also true that you can pass a lot of laws. Like the the democracy can keep pumping out a lot of legislation. And if they do it right, it's hard for the courts to interfere um, with. And, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, like think about the marriage equality movement. Some of those victories came through the courts. Some of them came through legislatures and ballot initiatives. And it was really important that by the time Obergefell came around, all of that groundwork had been laid. It's not just a story of like one Supreme Court victory, right? It's like state courts interpreting their state constitutions. It's ballot initiatives. It's legislatures. The whole, all the parts of the democracy were engaged. And I think that's why that change has been so successful. And personally, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Obergefell because it's really popular and deeply felt. People get why that equality is so important, I think. Emily Bazelon, staff writer for New York Times Magazine, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Emily, you and John and David over the last four years have helped to keep me sane. Thank you so much for the Gab Fest and for keeping it coming during the pandemic. Uh, I am a listener and a fan and so appreciative. Well, mutual admiration. Um, and I'm so glad to get to come on your show. It's such a treat for me. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old bisexual woman living in the Midwest. I'm just calling because I have a quick question about pressure and orgasms in women. I don't know. I don't even know how to say it, but basically, specifically with feet. My partner sometimes sits on the edge of the couch and I sit on the other edge where his feet are facing me and my feet are facing him. And tonight he extended his legs between my legs, putting his foot between my legs laying on my vagina. And he started to sort of shake his foot, like tap his foot. And then that pressure mimicked sort of like the vibration of my vibrators. And I was like, oh, I like that. So we explored that. Long story short, the pressure, the speed of his foot vibrating against me made me come at least three to four times. And I'm wondering, is this normal? Do people do this? Am I weird? Do I have a foot fetish now? Please explain. Please don't let me feel like a weirdo. Someone tell me that this has happened to them before. And Dan, tell me, is, is this a kink? Did I find a new kink? If you are a long-time listener this show... If you're a fan, you know there's no such thing as normal. You would also know that this isn't a kink. You didn't suddenly unearth a foot fetish. Just your partner was able to do with this foot something that you were only able to do for yourself in the past with a vibrator. And it worked for you. And it worked for your pussy. And his foot was incidental. That doesn't mean you won't create a powerful association between sexual pleasure and his foot, if he keeps providing you with these orgasms for that first time in this way, you might develop a powerful fetish for your partner's foot or feet, but not necessarily other men's or women's feet because he's able to do this thing. He's able to replicate the sensations of a vibrator by holding his foot out at a particular angle with a particular amount of tension and vibrating. Find a guy who can move his foot at the rate and pace of a vibrator. Ladies, all ladies should have this kind of guy with these kind of feet. 
but he can do this for you. Awesome. Let him do it for you and don't stress about it. I think you probably aren't stressing about it. I think you wanted to share. I think you wanted maybe to boast a little bit, but you felt you had to frame it as a problem or a concern or a worry that you were freakish or not normal or had a foot fetish suddenly as if there was something wrong with that. But if you're a longtime listener, you know there's nothing wrong with that. Even if, worst case scenario, you suddenly had a foot fetish snap into place, that wouldn't be a terrible thing. That would be a wonderful thing. You got four orgasms out of that thing already. So, folks, if you have something you want to share, something you want to brag about, we always run at the top of every show now, someone's success story. You don't have to frame it as a problem or turn it into a question. If there's something you want to brag about, you can just brag about it. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. J.D. McKintree tweets, Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, I know you're championing WAP on the Savage Lovecast as the common term for the physical evidence of female arousal, but I have always liked Pam Poovy's addition to the lexicon, sploosh, fun to say, and descriptive without being gross. I agree, and I will allow it. Like I've always said, there's more than one term for semen, one slang term. There can be more than one word for vaginal secretions. And uh, a quick reminder, and here's why I'm reading another tweet on this subject. While WAP or sploosh is often evidence of female sexual arousal, a woman can be aroused without getting wet and wet without being aroused. Women understand this. Women know this. So this is a message for the guys. If a woman isn't wet and tells you she's turned on and just needs to use a little bit of lubricant, believe her. And if a woman is wet and tells you she's not turned on, believe her too. Just, you know, generally, let's all err on the side of believing women. Bridget Sweet tweets, my boyfriend got me a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast for my birthday. So wedding bells? He's definitely a keeper. Bridget, I would suggest that you propose to him immediately. And finally, Habeas Humor tweeted about Kelly, the person who wrote in last week to tell me to stick to sex and leave politics and poor Donald Trump alone. Habeas tweets, I echo fake Dan Savage's fuck you to Kelly. A podcast about sex is political because sex is hugely politicized, almost always by conservatives like you, Kelly. Fuck everyone who's so privileged deaf they think sex exists in a political vacuum. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode, be sure to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And we really do appreciate it when our listeners post to Twitter or Instagram or other social media platforms about the show. Helps get the word out. Now your response calls. This message is in response to the 34-year-old woman that said she wanted to see her emotionally abusive ex-boyfriend. The similarities between our cases are uh, astonishing, actually. And I will say that really, your friends don't know what's right for you. You know what's right for you. And you have to think about how much work have you done on yourself in the past 12 years? Have you looked at yourself? Have you thought about your patterns? Have you thought about why you were in that abusive relationship? Have you been through therapy or group work? What have you done to let yourself know that you would never end up in that situation again? Or if you did, you would immediately recognize it and get right back out of it. And further, what has he been doing? Has this person actually been working on healing himself and those wounds that made him into that person? I truly believe that people can change if they want to. But if they have never shown that they want to change, besides just saying like, oh, baby, I'm sorry, you know, that's not enough. It's like, show me on paper what you've actually been doing to actually grow yourself yourself. 
And then maybe, you know, I give you a shot and we can talk and, and get some kind of closure between the both of us. So I think part of what you're wanting is closure for him and closure for yourself and also curiosity to see if he's grown or changed. So it's really up to you about how strong you feel and how you think that this is going to go down and what's going to happen to you um, with all the variables in it. And just from my own experience, my ex had changed quite a bit, but really didn't have the self-awareness or had really not done the actual work to be a much better person. And some of the same dynamics that we had when we were together showed up almost immediately. And I said, I'm recognizing these dynamics. I'm no longer interested in participating in them. And I bailed. Hey, I wanted to say to the guy who was like, hmm, what sort of consent should I be asking for in terms of making out? There is nothing sexier than consent. There's nothing sexier than like enthusiastic, excited, wanting to be together with each other. And nothing about that takes away anything to do with, I don't know, it just seems like if you feel like you should ask, go ahead and ask. And that's not going to make the person think that you're awkward or weird. It's probably going to make them think that you're informed and um, respectful of women's autonomy. I'm calling regarding the last episode, number 730, the woman from Chicago who was dating a guy who she found out voted for Trump. Honey, no, 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 no. Do not let a Trump supporter put their dick in you anywhere. It's a hard and fast rule. No Trump supporters put their dicks in us. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question or comment for a future show? There are two ways, two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment, and you can email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Have you made something for my Dirty Little Film Festival hump yet? The deadline to submit your film for the 16th Annual Hump Film Festival is coming right up. It's December 4th. Your dirty little movie can be gay, straight, kinky, vanilla, couples, solos, animation, erotica, hardcore, softcore, literally anything goes at Hump. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out how to submit a film and win large cash prizes. And if you want to watch more Hump films to get inspired, another great collection of my favorite dirty movies from the last 15 years starts playing online, streaming online on November 9th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab tickets for Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 2. And this Halloween, October 31st, is your last chance to get your horror movie fix with Hump's sister film festival, Slay. You can now watch two volumes of terrifying short horror films at slayfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Emily Bazelon on Twitter at Emily Bazelon. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for masking up. And thank you for voting. For Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. <laughs>